This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You are listening to the official podcast of The Playlist on IndieWire. I'm your host and editor, Eric McClanahan, and joining me this week from the site are Editor-in-Chief Rodrigo Perez, Managing Editor Kevin Jagernot, and Contributor Corey Everett. In this week's show, you'll hear us talking about everything from 12 Years a Slave to the controversy regarding Darren Aronofsky's Noah production and the new remake of Carrie. But we start off the show discussing Wes Anderson and his new trailer, Grand Budapest Hotel. So let's drop you into all the chatter happening over at the playlist as we start with Rodrigo's thoughts on Wes Anderson and the trailer. One of the th- interesting things about Wes Anderson that, like, you know, happens with Terrence Malick and happens with, like, you know, a lot of these really, really beloved auteurs is, like, ownership, where, like, you know, this is mine, this is definitive. People have really, really passionate, big, heated feelings on things. Um and so there's like a lot of expectations that go along with those things. And, you know, I have to admit, I think for a long time, uh, I had some of those issues as well, like with Wes Anderson, like um, wanting to be wanting him to be a certain thing. Um, and I, I now that like, you know, he's made a bunch of movies that I, I didn't care for as much. And um, I guess I'm just happy with him to be him himself. And I think that's great. And, and I think this trailer looks like really uh it it's, looks like um, looks like a screwball comedy. It looks like the style works really well with the um, screwball. Whereas in the past, for me, for example, and, and you know, I think this has happened to other people. Um, the style has made as as has uh, put a distance. The style and artifice puts a distance away from the emotion, and I'm never a fan of that in general. Um, so that's been my problem. But um, one, I'm just come to terms with like Wes is going to do what he's going to do. Um, like for, I think for a while there, I wanted him to return to the bottle rocket, rush more, less, um, less, uh, stylized thing. Like one could ar- even argue he sort of did that a little bit with Darjeeling, which is a little bit dialed down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I'm just fine with him doing whatever he's going to do. And, and I feel like the, the, the sort of like screwball, really zany comedy works with the sort of over the top kind of zany style so um i don't know i think it looks really good i think it's gonna be fun um it looks like it's yeah it just looks like funny and amusing and 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 what more can i ask you know i think at one point i just had like almost like mixed feelings because i was just like i was really into wes anderson and i wanted him to be like some wanted him to be something that for example like you know and nobody agrees with me on this but like the royal tenenbaums which is a movie that like it just I have so much problems with that movie because it, for me, is like, like I know everyone thinks it's Wes Anderson's favorite movie, or, or a lot of people do, but for me, it just like teeters on this like emotional greatness that it never quite gets to, and I've always found that ex- extremely frustrating. Um, it, it never lands this uh, like this like emotional awesome. I don't know if punch, but just it just never lands emotionally in the way that I want it to, and it it sets up all these pieces to go there and it never does for me anyhow. You know, another thing just regarding the uh, Grand Budapest is that 
uh, along with Moonrise Kingdom, it sees him dipping into some other. He's getting some other people cast in his films. Like Ray Fiennes looks like a really yeah. interesting uh, lead for the film. Yeah, I mean, how it, it, doesn't he not seem like so great and like so perfect for this? Like, I think for a second, like, wow, Johnny Depp was once going to take on this role, and now I can't even imagine what Johnny Depp could be in. Like, I would never want to see Johnny Depp, just even based on the trailer, I would never want to see Johnny Depp in this role. Is there? There's just like a cutoff for everybody out there where like there's a film of his that doesn't work, and then you. Does well, that? I, th- I think the thing is with particularly with um, Wes Anderson's film films is that they is that the approach, like his style always borders on being really precious and when it doesn't work it's very easy to sort of mock it or to sort of be really dismissive of what he's doing mm. and so i think that's where a lot of people kind of um are resistant i guess or or maybe hesitant about what he's doing especially since you know the argument is that he's made the same movie x number of times but for me uh I don't see that as a problem, really. I mean, I think with each film he's doing, he's trying little tweaks. He's he's doing, he's exploring uh, different, slightly different approaches, and you know they they haven't always worked. But within his style, within what he does, with within what his interests are, I think it's fine. Like I'm glad. To, like this film, um, I think he he said it's uh, influenced by like Ernst Lubitsch and, and whatnot, and it really feels like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, you know, I want to see Wes Anderson do a film in that style. I think he's a, he's a perfect voice for that kind of thing, and it's yeah. the kind of tone he's he suggested in other in his other films as well. So it seems like a perfect like hand in glove kind of movie. So like I'm I'm really excited to see what it's going to be all about. Yeah, it's just it's weird how like there was a time where you know auteurs who had a very distinct vision and and were repeating themes film to film. There was a time where they were really celebrated for that, and that was a big deal. You know, like the Coyote Cinema writers were like that was their whole thing that they got into, and um, you know Andrew Saris, like all, all of that. And it just seems like people are less. I don't know. They're less. In, they they don't want that as much. I don't know. But don't you think that's like like par for the course in any kind of? Uh, I was going to say criticism, but more beyond criticism, just like in your taste. For example, uh, here's a random example. Um, I love Tom Waits. Tom Waits is great, but Tom Waits has kind of made the same album for 20 years now, ever since <laughs> Rain Dogs. And I love Rain Dogs, but you know, when you get to I don't know album number however many, it just starts to feel so familiar to the point that um, it loses its impact. And so it's not about yeah. – essentially, it's not – at the end, it's not about the familiarity. It's about the the impact being lost because of the familiarity. And I think that's a legitimate um, criticism and I think that happens in all kinds of art. You know, If you repeat yourself too often, um, it's not necessarily that repeating yourself is bad. It's just that you can, you can lose um, your potency. Mm-hmm. And would would you also argue that the songs on the new albums, on the whole, probably aren't as good as the songs on Rain Dogs? And I think that's what it comes down to for people who have problems with Wes Anderson's recent movies. It's doubly frustrating because it's not just that he's doing the thing that you liked ten years ago, but it's mm-hmm. no longer working as well for you. Well, it's just also it's never going to be as fresh. So if this if a, if the person ends up doing the same thing over and over again. Um, that's part of the problem too. I mean, uh, even uh, here's the thing. Also, with let, you know, going back to Tom Waits, um, 
I, I don't really enjoy a lot of those albums, but out of, say, the 15 songs, there's always one or two that are fantastic, and they're not remotely fresh, but they're fantastic. I mean, there'll be a, a piano ballad that's a simple piano ballad like he's done um, uh, 40 times over, and it's heartbreaking, and it's gorgeous, but... The, you know, as a piece, and and maybe one could say that about a whole movie. Like a scene might be great, but the whole movie is like not quite there or something. You know. Mm-hmm. But part, I think part of this is also a bit of nostalgia mm-hmm. too. I mean, if you if the first Wes Anderson movie you saw was, you yeah, know, uh, uh, Bottle Rocket or Rushmore, then that will be the standard against which mm-hmm. you measure all things. And whether it's justified or, or not, it'll also cloud. Yeah, intentionally I mean, or not, it'll cloud that judgment. Like for me, like going to Tom Waits, like I love Rain Dogs, but I think Mule Variations is fantastic, arguably better. Uh, and that's just coming from someone who's been a long time Tom Waits fan, which is now we're totally digressing. But <laughs> right. no, but, but it, I think, it, it, but I think that's part of it, though. I mean, I, th- I think part of it yeah. is nostalgia, and I think you know one can look at like someone like Woody Allen, who every time he puts mm-hmm. out a movie, there's always the mm-hmm. same. Oh, look at Woody Allen; he's doing the same. Mm-hmm. thing again and yet he's delivered some great movies in the last decade yep. yeah. that stand as strongly as as anything he's done you know in the, in the 70s or 80s yeah i fully agree i mean he basically mostly does the same thing over and over again and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't yeah but um, he, yeah but but your point about nostalgia i think is a good one like just the the whole like because you know a lot of people's favorite wes anderson movie their standard is royal tenenbaums because that was the first one that they came to you know, I feel like a lot of uh, culture, a lot of people who are big Wes Anderson fans, that was the film that they discovered first. So that ends up being their touchstone, um, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought it's like the first one you see because Rushmore still for me is is my favorite, even though upon revisiting uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I feel like that's kind of the perfect Wes Anderson movie in a lot of ways. Like disagree. He, really? <laughs> yeah. I, here, here's why I just, I think because um, the fact that he made a straight up, like a stop motion animated movie, that's so hyper controlled, like that, that specific medium, that, that kind of film is he's essentially been doing that with live action movies his whole life. And it gets sure. more and more extreme. Yeah. So I just, uh, when I revisited fantastic Mr. Fox a couple months ago, I just, it just occurred to me. I was like, this is kind of representative uh, to the like the highest degree of like what he's about, you know that hyper control. Um, yeah, but Corey, you disagree. Just to talk about the trailer again for a second, as yeah. I, I was a total self-confessed Wes Anderson fanboy for about a decade. You know, he was one of my favorite directors, and then uh, around Life Aquatic, Darjeeling started to drop off a little, and and Fantastic Mr. Fox was the first one I saw that really kind of flatlined for me and and moonrise kingdom kind of did the same where it just it didn't work for me i gave it a second shot and it it played even not quite as well as the first viewing so i i pulled up the trailer kind of fully expecting to this would be the first time that i watched the trailer and i didn't get excited for it and i would think okay you know i i know now what doesn't work for me and i pulled it up and uh i just loved it and i can't uh quite explain why that would be other than maybe something about the it looks really fast and really funny whereas his last couple movies were maybe a little more uh emo and 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 weren't quite as as big on the comedy for me but Mm. um this one does look like it is uh gonna be really funny and uh and i think maybe that that the stylistic ticks and things that um might might have gotten on my nerves a little bit in the last movie 
could work if if they're in service of you know a really fast paced screwball comedy instead of something yeah, that was. I agree. Um, uh, the the wake of Wes Anderson because his style is so distinct and that people recognize it instantly that there was um that you have the wake of uh, imitators that come out and Kevin you even mentioned how his films can come off as precious and mm. uh, the the you know people use words like quirky to describe indie movies that are very similar to Wes Anderson but don't you find that like I mean first of all trying to uh, imitate Wes Anderson is like He's so distinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is pointless to do it. Um, you will just come off as a huge. You will come off as more derivative than, say, if you tried to, uh, you know, uh, nick what Tarantino was doing in the '90s. Like, yeah. Anderson is so so distinctive that if you, you know what I mean, you you would get you'd get more shit even if you purposely tried to make a Tarantino movie in the 90s right after Pulp Fiction, you'd get more shit now trying to make a Wes Anderson movie, I think, because it's just like, it's just a no, no win game for you to do that. Like his, his style is just so distinctive. And I don't think there are many, I mean, unless you're going to be really, really broad about it, I don't, I don't think there are many Wes Anderson-esque uh, films really out there. I mean, maybe you guys disagree. I have a few in mind. Napoleon Dynamite is one that has always come to mind. I mean, in a way, it's not. I guess it's not. It's I don't. Up. I don't really think it is at all. Personally, no? yeah, I don't. Okay. Think no, so I think it's really in that guy's. I think it's a, It's fairly different, actually. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm just looking at the surface of the visual. I mean, style the one and... the one that's been knocked around most recently is probably Submarine. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. But I don't know. That didn't really bother me either. Um, and submarine is 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 to its own credit uh pretty different you know it's yeah i would agree yeah and and i think uh one thing might be that they rather than him being influenced by wes anderson is that he shares a lot of the same influences that wes anderson has as far as yeah you know hal ashby or Lindsay anderson or things like this and uh mm-hmm. additionally just like surface level you know like the Rushmore as far as and submarine the protagonist you know high school love story misfit all that kind of stuff so yeah I think makes, on the surface there's a lot of similarities um, yeah but, but also uh, I mean I I know I don't think anyone else has seen it yet but his follow-up film the double is like totally different and it and it really just takes a whole other set of influences and puts it through his own lens so and, and here's uh, the other thing if you, if you just saw and it's, it's almost a shame because submarine is such a like if you'd never seen a Wes Anderson movie before, if they didn't exist and you saw Submarine, you'd be like, mm. "Wow!" Because it's such an accomplished first feature. Um, it, yeah, it, there there is some familiar. Um, it, without being Wes Anderson-y, there's some Wes Anderson. There's some familiar notes of just like that bittersweetness, that longing, um, that you know this this boy who who can't, you know, the the whole sort of can't get who he wants romantically like it, there's a there's a lot of similar feelings to Rushmore just because of like you said that the time period the, the the high schooler and that kind of thing but it's it's really accomplished man it's like uh it's so assured you know mm. assured piece of filmmaking um but yeah hopefully that um you know fall away after um the double you know one I was gonna say and I feel bad about saying this but it's it's true it's a ceremony you, oh yeah, it got a lot of Wes Anderson kind of elements to it, ticks and, and very like specific kind of shots, um, like and zoom. even the soundtrack too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it, again, not also like a, a well-made piece of film. It just it, it's just really indebted to uh, 
uh, Wes Anderson style. Yeah, one, that film didn't really make that much of an impact, even relative to its size and release. So uh, maybe... I, I I think you got a point there, Rod, where it's uh, people, it's going to be so blatant and so obvious that it's going to be tough for a film to really, to, uh, to, to, to make its own uh, impact when it, when it seems really blatant. Rodrigo had said like Royal Tenenbaums doesn't register emotionally for him. Mm. Just on the, on, just want to put in the opposite opinion, <laughs> which is in that movie, every time Ben Stiller says I've had a rough year, like I lose it. Like that for me is like the peak of that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. I love yeah. the little moment where the his his son comes off the uh, top bunk bed and just like lays with him on the floor. That that's a moment that gets that just has always gotten to me as well. <laughs> in the end montage when he's holding uh, Royal's hand in the ambulance and kind of like watching him go out. That's a nice moment too. We're talking about Wes Anderson. He's an auteur. So is Darren Aronofsky, who uh, we're hearing that he's getting some flack from the studio that is um, distributing his new film, Noah, his Noah's Ark epic film, uh, by far the biggest budget he's ever worked with. Uh, uh, it's north of $100 million. Um, it's been a big, big project. And they, if I understand right, he's he's had some test screenings for religious groups. Is that correct, Kevin? I know you wrote the news. Yeah, no, on. yeah. Um, the story goes that uh, it, the film is test screened for, um, I think, three different audiences. One that was majority Jewish, another that was majority Christian, and then, a fi- and then another audience that was more of a mixed group. And I guess it would... The studio is not – I think the issue with the film is apparently the third act, mm-hmm. um, again with Paramount and a film with the third act. <laughs> um, and I guess they're, they're having concerns. Uh, what specific – what those specific concerns are is unclear. Like it's not really being said. Um, and I guess for me I mean, with, this, with this whole thing is that I always find it amusing and baffling mm-hmm. that Paramount – like this is a this is a thing that existed in graphic novel form. Yep. Like they got this, they knew what they were getting into. It's Darren Aronofsky. Now, uh, I mean, yeah, and it's Darren Aronofsky, and now like you know, th- you know, theoretically months away from a March release, which I don't think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're throwing up red flags and they're having issues. Um, so yeah, I don't yeah, know. But, but part of that is just like you know, it's a it's a biblical thing, and whenever you have a biblical movie, you always have religious groups that. Um, you know, they, I mean, think about how the, the, um, whatchamacallit. Passion of the Christ. Yeah. Think about how important the religious groups were to that movie. They loved that movie and they were a big part of it being a huge hit. But But it doesn't matter whether whether this is Darren Aronofsky or anything else. You got to think of it as like a movie that's going into the public space. And when, and, and it's a biblical movie. Therefore these people have ownership. They have a say. And and think about all the people who they screen it to just basically different religious groups. Mm -hmm. But this is, and I, I'm not, I'm not defending Paramount. I think it's a cowardly, I think it's a cowardly uh, response, but I think it's also a typical one. But I think if they wanted to make a typical Noah's Ark movie, then they bought the wrong script. Yeah, <laughs> true. I mean, this is a movie that apparently has like six foot, like huge demon angels, and yeah. like takes a very, very fantastical approach to this story. 
I mean, if they wanted to make the Charlton Heston version, they could have easily done that. I think it's typical studio stuff of like, yeah, this script sounds great. Let's do it. Oh, and then, you know, they start marketing it. Oh, these religious groups don't like it. Uh Uh-oh. And so it's not about like we bought this. It's like, oh, there's this other new problem. You know what I mean? They just don't think about it that way. It's like you're almost being too pragmatic for them. Or they almost kind of want to straddle the line of saying, oh, well, how do we, you know, how do we take this? And still market it to the religious audience, but update mm-hmm. it for a hip, you know, moviegoers today. We'll yeah. get an auteur like Aronofsky to do it. But then once they start seeing it come in, and they realize, no, but what I don't. They I don't think they ever. I think they they never thought about these religious groups in the first place. I thought. I think they thought big epic, big tentpole. Oh, I'm sure. No, I'm, I'm sure they. No, they definitely did think about the religious groups in the first place. I mean, they've the first audience to see a trailer for the movie was a big mega Christian group. Right, introduced by Darren Aronofsky. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you think about. Finished. No, but that's the kind of thing you think about months in advance. You don't just like finish the movie and go, "Oh, well, I guess we should show it to some Christians." Well, I think they when they did. first they did I, plan it months in advance. They saw those people saw it like I think this summer or something. You know? No, but I'm saying even before they saw it. I mean, even when they were shooting the film, I'm sure Paramount Marketing was already trying to figure out how they're going to roll this out because for movies that cost this much, this is something. You, it's yeah. a long game. You you plan this out. Mm-hmm. So this is I, – I think I think you're being a little bit easy on Paramount in a way. I, I think they went into this thinking they're going to have another Passion of the Christ. But then they realize they got something that's quite different. Yeah, I, I think from the beginning, in order to make the numbers work on giving Aronofsky you know, $100 million, they must have figured out – not only can we get the religious base, but we can also make this a tent pole that, you know, you know, hip cinephiles and normal people and everyone will see. I think the, the hope was from the beginning that they could win over both groups without alienating either. And that's the bullseye. And maybe what they're finding is, uh oh, if we're only appealing, you know, to the cinephiles and, and maybe a little bit of the mainstream, then we're not getting that religious audience. Then maybe we're right. Not but as you guys say, back. they're not working blind. They have a script. They know what they were getting into. So let's not call, call them completely dumb. You know what I mean? They, they it's, it's not like they went, oh, oh, this is way different than we thought. Like they they, so they read the script that had these crazy angel demons and stuff like that, and you know things like that. So I, I think it's more reactionary because there, there's apparently some like you know people have been calling it some of the ending like wacko environmental ideas those were in the script you know paramount probably was like yeah this will work and then all of a sudden it's like oh the religious groups don't like it hmm now we have to rethink things you know what i mean it's yeah. reactive I, I think there would have been controversy no matter what with this film. absolutely yeah mm-hmm. no absolutely because that's it's inevitable i although i gotta be honest i don't remember that much controversy leading up to passion of the christ it's it seemed like those groups oh, there was so what <laughs> i just don't re- but controversy. I, I just don't remember i just remember i honestly no, because i just remember was... the embrace that that film had the the biz- like people just took to that film when it came no, out like it no, was, there was no, there it was, was huge huge controversy it was storm. massive yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay. There was a massive uh, New Yorker piece about um, Mel Gibson's father, who's like a oh yeah, that's right, crazy, like Holocaust and like a, denier. Yeah, and, and that's like just a sixty one minutes thing, thing and there's yeah, all kinds yeah. of shit. True. Well, there you. I mean, <laughs> you got. <laughs> I'm really glad you guys it, it are here to correct me. Hasn't it been a while though? I'm trying to think. Passion of the Christ, Dogma. I mean, it seems like the mm. kind of religious outrage over movies used to flare up every year or two, and and I'm. 
struggling to think of the last time that I really remember. Yeah, even yeah, uh, that's a good point, outcry. Corey. Like uh, dogma, something as silly and dumb as that that has like that nobody should give a shit because it's just so. It's just silly, and man, people were up in arms and about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the problem ultimately comes down is people are uh, bitching about a movie before they've even seen a still, you know, even seen an image from it. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you have religious movies. People are, you know, again, it's a, it basically all goes down to ownership. This is our thing. You're not going to be debasing it. You're not going to be disrespecting it, right? Da 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 da. And you know, so and, and religion obviously is such a massive, gigantic thing that that encompasses the entire globe. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm. I'm sure this is uh, uh, one a bit of no surprise, but at the same time bigger than obviously Paramount expected. Because as you said, if you know if Paramount are as wise as as or uh, you know keen as you're saying, which I, I agree with them, they wouldn't have greenlit this, this in the first place. But what probably is more the the answer is that they miscalculated in thinking how people were going to take to it. Yeah. And I mean, I, this is an example, I think, too. This these kind of um, religious themed movies are like the the bad press that can go along with it, or the controversial press that can go leading up to its release can actually really affect the box office. Whereas, um, I think most uh, releases are happy with any kind of publicity that a film might be getting, good or bad. I mean, mm-hmm. it tends to get attention, but it does seem like these religious groups really hold a lot of sway over their. Um, uh, you know, for people that are like, if they approve of it, then then people will flock. It it seems to which yeah, but at the same time, I don't think it's going to kill it if they don't. If they, you know what I mean? It just it might not become the huge hit that Paramount wants, but yeah. people are interested in it. They'll still go see it regardless of what religious groups go say. But it it could be the difference between like you know the Passion of the Christ being a mega hit and it just being like you know a decent sized movie or whatever. Only two of us on this on this week's show have seen Twelve Years a Slave, Corey and, and Rod. And Rod, you talked about it uh, a, a little bit when we did our um, film festival wrap up recently. And you had mentioned that uh, the film was, and you and by all accounts that I've read, that it, it is a difficult film. It is uh, you have to endure a lot of a lot of uh, tough subject matter, tough content for sure. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I want to, to start with is um, your recent New York Film Festival wrap-up, Rod. You, you mentioned that the film hasn't really resonated, hasn't really stuck with you. Well, first of all, if you remember the first time, and I only remember this because I re-listened to the podcast, when you, when you guys asked me about it, I sort of had these sort of tentative thoughts. Yes. And I was like, yeah, it's good, it's good. And I didn't really say a lot because in a way, I, in retrospect, I think I was sort of still grappling with the movie and I was I didn't even necessarily want to say anything bad about it because I – it's, I don't know, it's a, you know, it's a weird one, you know, it's a, it's a topic, but I think in reading some of the criticism about it, it started to ring a little bit more, uh, it started articulating feelings for me about some of the problems that I had with it, mm-hmm. being that like, you know, some of the elements of it are like, you know, some people, and I don't fully embrace them, but I think some of the criticism about it. Um, Critic Wire wrote a piece about some of the some pieces, and I thought they were pretty salient stuff. I don't necessarily even agree with all of it, but I, I, it's not stuff that I would just even dismiss. Like, like I don't even like that term torture porn, but there are a few scenes where it's like a little bit much, like things like that. Um, I guess have 
distanced me from it a little bit. And there's also a lot of cameos that I just feel like they distracted me. Mm-hmm. Like every every two seconds, there's like a star on screen for like every like whether it's Michael K. Williams in this shot, and then it's like uh, it's, he ha- gets handed over to this person, and then there's like uh, Paul Giamatti here, and like it just a lot of it just. Um, and I and I know that. I'm sure it's well-intentioned more like, hey, well, we can just get anybody for this because everyone wants to be involved with this. So like, hey, we can get this actor for this small part. And that's great. And, and you know, casting strongly across the board is, is never I – mean, you can't fault anybody for that. Mm-hmm. But I just felt in, in a way slightly distracted. But do you think that the casting is also – part of just getting the movie financed at all yeah no absolutely absolutely yeah that, that's part of it too it's like you need i mean they're already talking about there's all of these interviews out there where people are saying like you know without brad pitt this movie is not going to get made this is a difficult subject and it's a it's you have to cast big around it so that's part of it too and then if you can get all like 16 17 18 names for like you know uh little parts along the way great um but yeah i I'm I'm not faulting them for it. More than the practicality of getting it, um, getting the movie financed, uh, which I do agree that the Brad Pitt uh, moment, especially and some of the other actors, I'll, I'll agree that it does take you a little bit out of the movie at times. But I would ar- almost argue that the greater good of putting all these stars in this movie and Brad Pitt, if it gets more people to actually watch the movie, because if this movie gets made and nobody goes to see it and it got financed and that's great and it sits on a shelf somewhere, then I feel like the, its its purpose is not being accomplished. And the thing that I really came out of this movie thinking is that people need to see this movie and kind of what Rob was talking about, about coming out of it and, and feeling all this uh, empathy for, for people and really putting you um, – in that space to realize this was not that long ago. And this is the first movie that I've ever seen that really um, tackled slavery in this way. And it's not this kind of winking pastiche Tarantino thing, you know, and it's not roots. And it's really, I, I felt so glad watching the movie that, that McQueen was the guy to, to make this movie and the one to tell that story. And some of these shots that Rod are talking about, we're not talking about horror movie violence here. We're really talking about, um, kind of the the brutality of of lingering on a certain shot where it's not like uh, necess- it's not like limbs being hacked off or anything like that. It's really just him uh, lingering on a certain shot for such a length of time that it, he's really. I just felt like he was really holding the audience's nose and, and just saying, "Look yeah. at this! Don't look yeah. away! No, you look at this." Think yeah, about this, and absolutely. it really gave you time to ruminate on it and and consider the weight. And there's this one shot in the movie that it's not. Uh, but don't you think I, there's it, a, like, almost like a righteousness to it? There's a, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a part of it where it's like it goes beyond. Like I, I understand we need to under we see this topic and 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 we need to to see this story and it needs to be told and people need to to see it. But there's a couple moments where it's like. Yeah, dude, we get it. Like, you don't need to like, you're you're shoveling an audience's faces and shit, and you're you're bordering on gratuitous, and I, that's my problem with like at least one of those moments where it's like uh, it's too much, and I think that's I, his. I think that's his point. I think I want he wanted to do it. Yes, he wants it to be too much, but that doesn't. That, 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 I, well, you know, I don't agree with that or at least i don't i I still don't i I get that he's going for that and that he was purposely trying to do it but it it still doesn't work for me 
I think McQueen is a very bold filmmaker and I can see a lot of other people making this movie and, and toning way back on that stuff. And you, and you see from everything you've read about Django Unchained, the original script had a lot more harsh shit in it. And he had to mm-hmm. pull all that back because the audience couldn't have fun and go along for the ride. And so that was Tarantino kind of backing off of, of what he had intended to be a more brutal, more emotional, more realistic movie because he decided he wanted to have a romp with it. And I don't know if he, well, that's a whole other story. And I could see other filmmakers, you know, be it whoever, Spielberg, or basically other filmmakers who have danced around the subject of slavery, but without, who haven't tackled it head on. And I think this movie, uh, it needed to be said this way. And there are a lot of people who will come along and probably make movies that, that, that don't, you know, hold your nose and shit. But I think people, people need, People need this movie once, and I'm glad that McQueen was the the first guy to really come along and do it. And I think it's a really powerful movie, which whatever little problems I have with it, yes, some of the um, cameos and such maybe take you out of a little bit. I, I would tear up at certain moments in the, throughout the movie, and then kind of it, it would lose me for a little bit and check me back in. But um, it's a really uh, just – it's an important I think it's an important movie and I think it's really important that people see it and not important in that put air quotes around it. It's going to be up for awards. How does this affect its fucking nominations? Like <laughs> it's an important movie for for humans to see and, and really consider I, I can't that argue was, that at all. Yeah, this was not that long ago. And uh, it's something that you can walk around and, and really forget that uh, this is the way things were. And I don't, yeah, I don't I'm not like in seen this way. No, 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 no I, I know. <laughs> and then let's not get it twisted. I, I don't dislike yeah. this movie. Um, I'm just still grappling with some of my feelings. And, but I totally agree that like, I don't care whether you hated this movie ultimately or whatever. I think you definitely should see it too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I just, I think I have some uh, complicated feelings around it that I need to maybe explore with a second viewing. Mm-hmm. Because I can't yeah. quite, I also can't quite articulate them right now, and and that's also even just frustrating me because I don't, I'm, I, I feel like I need to see it again. <clears throat> and I and I know that shame was divisive too, so I, I feel like, um, you know, that's just going to be McQueen's McQueen's deal. He's going to split audiences. I mean, even among critics, I feel like half half of them loved shame, and half of them really just hated the way he was taking the story so seriously. And I guess it's going to be a similar. Um, response here with some people just thinking it's maybe too much imagine this guy did a comedy <laughs> oh man yeah well he said he wants i don't to know do if musical. he's capable you know i don't know if he's capable Corey, you wants to do a musical you were saying yeah i think he didn't yeah. say in an interview recently that's right one of the musical with basketball well, he was he was going to do uh the fella cootie biopic oh yeah uh, okay that's and right. then he's not doing that anymore but i think that would have been really that would i would love to see him do something like that yeah i mean if i mean it's it's a hard to to lob lob this criticism at him, but if you think of those three films that he's seen so far, he's kind of humorless. <laughs> Not a lot well, of laughs in there, I guess. But he's also taking on humorless topics. I wouldn't call it grueling, or I, I didn't really think of that as an endurance test per se. But um, I kind of think, in yeah. ways, it is actually. Mm-hmm. Um. And and maybe that's also part of my problem with the movie. It also is like a lot of similar uh, ideas to a lot of the survival narratives we've seen out there. Um, it's different because it's not like the stranded thing, but in many ways it is. I mean, it, this guy is essentially is stranded. 
he is um, he's you know sure it's not space or it's in the middle of the ocean by himself, but he kind of is by himself. He's in the middle of like um, you know a plantation, and yeah, he's got other slaves there, but he's an educated man, and most of them aren't, and he feels very isolated from everybody. He's got no one to connect to. He it, it's there's a lot of that sort of one man against the universe regardless of whether there's people there ideas you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so i find it very similar in uh some of that respect or that regard of of uh the endurance of like of being able to endure this situation this this ordeal um which you know the same thing as in gravity the same thing as all all is lost and in the same thing with um uh captain phillips you know um there's a lot of those similar themes, um, it, it, and I find it, I find it it is grueling, and it it it's you know it's basically the tale of him being you know captured, and then you know I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that you know he gets to freedom, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it's just that it's that experience, and maybe also and and losing his humanity sort of, really, yeah yeah or at least being on the verge of losing his humanity throughout the whole yeah. time. And that's Corey, what you just talked about is, uh, is what makes the film for me because otherwise, uh, it's just an experience of him, of the grueling grind of all of it. And that doesn't give me anything. You know what I mean? Um, that, that's just, that is, in a way is kind of torture porn. Um, yeah. I, and, and, and so, the him grappling with losing his humanity and his fight for his humanity um and his battle to not fall in despair that's where the humanity lies in the movie and that's the texture that's the subtext to it that makes it a great movie i think my issue is again i need to see it again i think there's parts where the movie and i think you touched on it too where you got up tearied or whatever i think the film loses a little bit of focus of that sometimes and it becomes mm-hmm. that experiential grind um and the parts that speak to me are are this what we're talking about the humanity and the parts that lose me are where we're back into kind of almost matter of fact uh not documentary like but just matter of fact grueling grind i think it is an endurance test if it didn't have a quote unquote happy ending rod would would this film and and yet everything was the same and it just ended with Solomon he he died would that be end game like you you couldn't take it would it would it be too much no not necessarily because the ending uh you know we don't want to get into it too much but i don't know if it also totally worked for me okay okay cuz i guess what i'm getting at is certain there's uh, i guess Rod, I'm thinking uh, you're probably not going to queue up to see like Irreversible or some of the other French extreme stuff anytime soon. Is my is my guess from what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> the stuff where it is like you you are enduring things, difficult, harsh content. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, if- can we just say that this is? I mean, this movie is no way in line <laughs> with uh, those types of movies. It's just right. I I think the maybe the expectation got out there early that this is going to be kind of a oscar Beatty movie and especially after mm. the toronto and the, this is going to win best picture i honestly if this wins best picture that's fucking great because this seems like a movie that people especially older academy members are not going to want to watch do you yeah. know what i mean so like if this is the kind of movie that can actually win then that then that's good because i i really don't see this as oscar bait uh middle of the road sentimental i mean this is i think this is the real deal this is this is a really great film oh, and uh 
but it, but it isn't, you know, wh- whereas it may be definitely harsher than what, you know, uh, Academy voters are used to. It's, it's nowhere near, you know, extreme French, you know, right. attention, yeah. irreversible yeah. martyrs. We're not, we're not anywhere near, 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 near that stuff. No, 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 not at all. But and I think you yeah. touch upon, you touch upon an in- another interesting point, Corey. That's just that the idea that like, God, can you imagine? Just some people be like, I just don't want to face that. I don't want to deal with the ugliness of this, so I'm not going to watch it. Kind of already happening. I don't know. I wrote about it this week, but it wasn't like a headline or anything. But there was um, one of the Oscar bloggers. I forget who wrote this. Someone in quick little piece um, that the I think the first Academy screening. For twelve for twelve years a slave was like a little more than half full, whereas a week earlier for Gravity they had to like turn people away. So I think that already sort of indicates there's already a, a sort of hesitance to sort of sit down and, and take in the movie. Mm-hmm. Some violent films have actually won Best Picture of late too, or you know in the last maybe five six years you had like Slumdog Millionaire has some really difficult stuff that happens before uh, all the happiness at the end. Uh, <laughs> the Departed is a really uh, violent film and it's yeah. more of a straight up genre piece. So, uh, but those are all sort of pop movies too. They're all sort of text like build right. around what a very accessible sort of format. What about no country for old men though? I mean, that's, I would argue that's also accessible as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is, well, this on, on one hand, I feel like this is his most, I feel like it's one in his filmmaking. It's his most mainstream. Yeah. Um, but it also <laughs> isn't, like a walk in the park by any means uh and just as an aside let every oscar blogger of all time take note like man this is how it is every single fucking year <laughs> tell you ride tell you ride it was like this is fucking one best picture like this is fucking got it in the bag like <laughs> nothing like this is a lock there's forget it and now you know two months later like now there's like, oh maybe people aren't seeing it maybe there's this maybe there's that that happens every single year so like you know for every oscar person out there like you know just it's always a wait and see game never declare anything ever early because the winds are always shifting on these things you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just eric i would clarify one other thing is that there's i think there's a difference in maybe you're thinking that the film is extremely violent Mm -hmm. the film is really harrowing but it's not it's not because there's violence on screen like there's a lot of movies like the departed or whatever that use violence in a way that's more you know pop and 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 kind of accessible and this isn't that you're you're seeing these graphic things happen it's just that it's a very harrowing kind of emotional experience done in a very stark um kind of matter of fact way and and that and that and it's really the context behind what you're being shown more than what you're being shown that makes it kind of more disturbing than something yeah you know a, a horror the... movie that that in, invites you to cheer when people are getting you know hacked to death is way different than uh you know what this movie's doing one of the most violent scenes in this movie, while you do see some elements of it, some of the most brutal, grueling elements of it are because it's not actually on screen. Or at least you're seeing it from a slightly different angle where you're not seeing the impact of certain acts of violence. Right. Okay. Right. Which can be usually more effective. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. A smart um, filmmaker always realizes that, you know, that mm. violence – the acts don't necessarily need to be shown to be, I mean, just look at like, I don't know, any, I don't know, some of the Nolan films that have like got, got away with the PG 13 rating because they didn't do show the violence, but the, all the violence is there and implied and it, and it's just as powerful, you know? Definitely. Definitely. Or in Tarantino's early career, everyone swears, you know, they're seeing things <laughs> that they're not seeing ear being cut off, et yep. cetera, you know? 
He um, lost that though. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> he just shows it all now. So, Carrie, another film that that's coming out this weekend or that that came out this weekend uh, is is of course a remake of the Brian De Palma film, another adaptation of the Stephen King book. Kevin, your review wasn't exactly glowing uh, for the film. <laughs> yeah, and um, maybe just to start off uh, why um, it doesn't it isn't successful at updating um, these the seventies film. Um, well, I think for the first. I think the first thing is that I think there is room for a, a contemporary of Carrie. I think there's a lot of great themes in that story, you know, about rites of passage, um, about being an outsider and all those sort of things that could make really great material for a great horror movie. And I was kind of excited to see a woman particularly take those on. I think that's a very exciting prospect. Right. Kimberly Pierce directed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, I put it in my review and, it, and it's kind of a telling quote. Um, she, she did this interview with the times and she says she viewed the story as a great superhero origin story. Mm. And that kind of really makes clear, like that kind of explains why the movie just does not work at all. Mm. Because yeah. when it's, when it's not sort of shamelessly, when it's not sort of being a carbon copy with very slight sort of changes to the De Palma film, it really takes this story, this, it really takes the story of a, of a young woman who lashes out after sort of being emotionally beaten down and just turns it into a straight-up revenge narrative that leaves the door open for a sequel. And it just does not work. Like, it's just tonally, it's kind of all over the place. Um, it, it, short, it sells short a lot of the themes that I think were really there to, that could have made for a much more fascinating story. It's a, it's a theme, I, I assume, I mean, it's got to be part of some of the themes of, like, bullying and things like that, right? The like only sort yeah, I mean, the only sort of thing it really adds to that in this version, and it's not a spoiler, I mean, it's in the trailer, is that they sort of film her, um, when she first gets her period in the shower, it's sort of filmed on a cell phone and then put on YouTube. And that's like this, and that's like the contemporary the modern, statement right? on bullying, and that's where it ends. Ugh. And then the rest of the movie is everything you saw in like the De Palma film. Yeah, yeah. You know, Kevin, that's, when you were just kind of just dis- describing how you thought it was, you know, possibly ripe for a, an update, and uh, the, describing what the themes of the story were, it occurred to me that w- though it's not at all from the female perspective which is what's really important about carrie and the coming of age and the kind of awkwardness with with that that with the male counterpart to that i feel like is chronicle which did a much better Mm. job of showing uh the superhero or villain however you see it origin story of the guy who's kind of picked on and bullied and then finally gets these powers and then lashes out um at the end of the movie which is that's a that's actually a great comparison actually yeah i think that film really did that kind of narrative like really, really well and really effectively. And it's yeah, the kind of thing that's missing, I think in, uh, in the Carrie remake, which well, really just, a... which really, uh, speaking of like, which really just uses that sort of last like explosion of like the prom going to hell. 
it really just is like, well, now we're in the year 2013. Like, I don't know if you remember the original film, because that scene is not very long. Mm-mm. Like, the whole prom destruction. Like, it's really, like, five minutes, and then the movie's done. Like, mm-hmm. it goes to credits. Whereas here, it's spread out to maybe 20 minutes long, and you really get some, like, kill shots. And it's really much more calculated, and I think that kind of misses the point. Chronicle is that, like, what, you know, there's a whole emotional arc about these, like... Um, not only is it one guy being bullied, it's a friendship story. You know, it's these three guys. And yeah. then there's a tragedy at the end, which makes it resonant, like a tragedy between friends, you know, where someone has to be sacrificed because these powers are being perverted and, and being, you know, there's the whole, there's a whole morality issue there that's, that's powerful. Even if that ending isn't necessarily super emotional, there's a, there's a morality thing that, that throughout that thing is like uh, our powers and the abusive power, you know, which I don't know. I think Carrie, but from the sounds of it, probably just revels in in revenge in with these powers and and nothing deeper. Which well, and- from yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. And for me, like, I don't know if anyone else views the De Palma film this way, but I see it, especially with the tone of it. Like, it's very heightened. It's very De Palma. Oh yeah. yeah, it really to me it plays like sort of like a almost like a, a really sort of kind of operatic tragedy. Like, I think yeah. it's what happens to Carrie is so tragic. And yeah. this film misses that heart, that sort of like, that really sort of emotion of it. Like it really, and you're right, it kind of just turns it into a kind of a silly like, oh cool, I have like, I can do this stuff and now I've been hurt and I'm just Well the gonna, fact like, that you said that they, that they turned it into a superhero film to me is missing the mark because that's not what the original carries about, you know. And, and while Chronicle has some of those things, we're not remaking Chronicle here, you're, make, you're remaking Carrie. Um, yeah. And it, and, and, uh. Chronicle work because it's it's exploring and, and dealing with different themes, you know. Although some of them are similar, like you know, um, but uh, yeah, I think the De Palma, having not having not seen it in a while, it's very operatic and also kind of like cautionary and ultimately a tragedy. Whereas it sounds like this is like also the idea that this keeps the door open for a sequel is like sounds kind of retarded. <laughs> yeah, I also- mean, it not it's not in the way that you're expecting, but it it's really is there, and it just kind of it leaves like an a pretty bad taste in your mouth. Mm. Also a tragedy is that this comes from Kimberly Pierce, not some no name hack, but, but a a really good and promising filmmaker who seems to have lost her way the past decade. Well, I didn't mind her last film. Stop loss. Yeah. I think stop loss has got some really interesting things in it, even if it's unsuccessful. Well, the, the New York times piece of all the movies she tried to get going too was really heartbreaking. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. And, and to see that she had to settle on kind of well, let me try and do my best with Carrie, and then even that ends up maybe not turning yeah. out as. as and good I think as the saddest thing is that it really feels like anonymously directed. Like oh. you could have put anyone's name on this. Like it's really not an auteur kind of a take. It's really like a very studio remake, thirty million dollar <laughs> horror movie. It's oh, kind of crappy. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's disappointing. It's also just doubly disappointing because having read that times piece i all of a sudden got really excited for the movie because she, t- she was talking about it and all these themes that you're talking about kevin and and how it's like um i don't know she was talking about articulating it in this way that was very rich and, and really textured and full of theme and i was like wow okay now i need to see this and then you know <laughs> kevin saw it and then i think he emailed me right immediately afterwards and basically like none of that's in the movie <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do? That's what happens with the modern, the modern movie these days. You gotta leave it open for the sequel. You gotta. You and the other, a, and the other thing is homogenization. too homogenization. 
Yeah, and the other thing is too. I, there were certain corners of the internet that were sort of super excited that it was going to be an R-rated like carry. My God, this is like it's like two steps away from being a PG thirteen. Like, yeah. it's I'm not really what, sure. Is, why is they, it R-rated? Yeah, is it R-rated? And and furthermore, pretty sure it is. Who yeah, cares. Do you that, care? Do you ever care if a movie's R rated or PG rated? I do anyone, sometimes. Sometimes do you? I could never give a shit. And no, and I it understand makes zero fucking difference. I totally agree. I agree with you. Like, or where you're coming, unless from, you're I, like a horror fan when you want to see specific things. Exactly, it's for that audience specifically. It does. It does matter. But honestly, I was uh, pretty bummed out when the fourth Die Hard movie was rated PG thirteen because I don't know. I don't know. It 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 just felt. Did unreal. the other matters? Did the movies other? Did the other? Did it matter for those other movies? They're terrible. Um, <laughs> the other Die Hard movies. <laughs> yeah, the first Die Hard is a phenomenal movie. What the are you first Die Hard. That's but that's uh, Die Hard one and the rest is like night and day. Um, Die Hard two is okay. I actually kind of like the third one a little bit too when, <laughs> <laughs> when John McTiernan came back. But anyway, that's that's another discussion. I'm just saying. That in when a series or a franchise in particular or types of movies, being horror movies, uh, there you there's an expectation, and if if um, or even just in the Die Hard franchise specifically, those first three movies were all rated R, and John McClane swore and he bled and all those things, and it's it just seems like that series is. I mean, let, let me put it to you this way: I don't even know what Prometheus was rated. I know there was a talk about it having being R rated or being PG thirteen rated, mm-hmm. and I would argue that. I, I, like someone could look it up. I don't care. Uh, it's R. It's R. Well, it could have been. P- it could have easily just have been PG thirteen. It's one of those movies that sits on the border and it doesn't really matter. No, mm-hmm. None of, none of. I think they could have. Okay, so it's R. I think they could have pulled off the same movie as PG thirteen and just done a few cuts, and it wouldn't have. And the impact of it, it, regardless of whether it's good or not, the impact of it would have been barely lost. It's one of those movies that lives right on the edge, and that, that's it's sort of an example of what you can do these days. Like I don't think it necessarily like great it's r-rated it didn't i don't think that movie would have been i didn't like that movie very much but i don't think it would have been any less successful had it been a pg-13 that's a really good I point think, i think i think marketing something like prometheus or or whatever as or carry as like oh it's r-rated it has become a marketing tool to attract people who want right certain audiences who still you know unfortunately I, which i might be a part of i think <laughs> I think the lines are, are blurring more and more these days, kind of as Rod said, with some mm. of like Christopher Nolan's intense PG-13s and things. It really depends on the filmmaker. I think maybe back in the 90s, like you're talking about, Eric, with you know, Die Hard movies or whatever, there was a clearer distinction between movies that were uh, maybe more for adults and, mm-hmm. and they were rated R and they were, the content was aimed at adults. And, and PG-13 meant not just that you could show a little less, meant that it was aimed at, as entertainment for an entirely different audience. Right, and I think right, as we've yeah. gotten into this decade, the lines have blurred more and more where you're seeing R-rated movies that are kind of meant for everybody and could almost be PG-13. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing PG-13 movies that are made for smart adults as well as everybody. So it, yeah. I, I do remember it used to bother me more when I would think about how could they do a PG-13 this. But Rod's kind of right. I, I really don't. They mean different things now. These days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It means, I mean, what, like you're, what, you're exactly yeah, right. It used, to be, it used to be a delineation for audiences. It's not anymore. It means, it means nothing. Those, those, those boundaries don't work. It's just now it's just come down to like the difference between a few graphic elements that the MPA, MPAA either 
likes or doesn't. And that's, that's right. all it is. Or you have a situation like Philomena, which has two F words and is rated R. <laughs> so right. I, well, I figure no one under 17 is going to see that. Movie, so. <laughs> you never know, man. There was a know. huge 12-year-old audience for that movie. That I mean, that was the King's Speech, to too, right? The one yeah. scene made yeah. it rated R until they so, censored it. But I, I mean, like... Yeah, the rating system's fucked. Like, rather, in the 90s, it was kind of fucked. Even now, it's kind of fucked. Yeah, the That's MPA a whole is, is... Exactly. The MPA is... It's a whole other podcast. They're really stupid, and they <laughs> are... No, they are, and they yeah. and I mean, even just the the hypocrisies between what gets away with violence and what does what gets away with sex is, is like just so hypocritical. I mean, obviously that's a whole other topic, but it, they're they're just kind of brutal. We got from Twelve Years a Slave to Die Hard with a Vengeance in twenty minutes. That's pretty good. <laughs> exactly, and I was shamed for my liking of Die Hard with yeah. a Vengeance. Damn it! Um, no, I think the first Die Hard's amazing. Of, I mean, uh, yes. the first Die Hard is an utter classic. <laughs> it is, like it is. without question. Um, I just the rest of it's super diminishing returns, and like. I don't. By the time the fourth one came around, I could give a fuck. And That's, it was yeah, so I didn't. I didn't terrible. see anything after three. It was fucking so bad. The fourth one. It was just like. <laughs> yeah, the first one's. I watched it for that uh, Die Hard feature we did. I regret everything. That was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's easily one of the worst movies. I think that came out this year, right? Or was it last year? Yeah, no, no yeah, the fifth January, one came yeah. out this year. Mm-hmm. The fourth one came out like four years ago. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't even see the fourth one. I'm talking the fifth one. Yeah, the oh, fifth yeah, one. Now, the fifth one went back to being rated R. So whatever that means. Um, oh, well, see, the fifth one. It's I'm for sure adults it, again. <laughs> it was rated R because it's a total utter piece of shit. And I'm sure it's worse than the fourth, fourth one. Which, if you're saying the fourth one was PG-13, like, go by that. I haven't seen the fourth one. But I yeah. bet you. I guarantee you any any money in the world that the fifth one rated R is worse than the fourth one rated. <laughs> that is true, actually. That's very true. There you go. Because it like looks like a total. I mean, I didn't see the fourth one, but the fifth one is just fucking abominable. So. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up this week's episode, you guys. Um, I want to thank Kevin, uh, Rodrigo, and Corey for coming on. And uh, as always, it's a treat to talk with uh, all three of you. How do I want to sign off? Um, I guess we'll see just see. Later. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll see you at the playlist. How's that? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Stop right. on by. <laughs> There's always room for one more. All right, guys. Um, take it easy. And uh, thanks again. Cool. Right. Thanks, Bye. man. Bye. All right. Later. Bye.